Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Joe McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Ian Swanson on the show. Ian is the co-founder and CEO of Protect AI, and I'm also joined by a special co-host today, Emilio Escobar, CISO of Datadog, and a previous guest all the way back on episode two. So in this show, we'll cover the basics of ML and AI security, what ML SecOps means, new attack surfaces and threat vectors as a result of LLMs, and a bunch more. So Ian, let's start off with you. Describe your journey and how you came to found Protect AI. There's two answers I can give here. The easy one is I've been in the machine learning space for 15 years. I've had a couple companies. One, Symmetrics was acquired by American Express. My second company, datascience.com, helped pioneer the MLOps space, acquired by Oracle. And most recently, I was at AWS, the worldwide leader of AI and machine learning. So I guess I can say I know the importance of security of AI and machine learning systems. That's the easy answer. The second answer would be, hey, I was at a conference when these like classic Silicon Valley conferences where you sit on beanbags and you discuss the topic on the door. And that topic was security. So I go in the room, sitting on a beanbag, and somebody brings up AI and machine learning. And they talk about machine learning insecurity, security vendors. And I ask, what about security of machine learning? And they look at me like I'm kind of crazy. And by the way, this is like two years ago. And they say, well, code's code, and was one answer, one response. Or they said, well, we adopt AI from vendors, and the vendors have the security covered. Well, I know that's not always true. And sitting two beanbags over for me was Ed Sim, managing director of Bold Start. And he texts me, and he's like, let's get out of this room and fund your new company immediately. And so I'd like to say, like, this was an easy decision, AI, you know, security of AI and machine learning. And it's something that I've known for over a decade but it really was that catalyst of that event, you know, and talking to Ed, where we really sat down really with a napkin and said, you know what, let's go for it. Let's build a new business here. That sounds like Ed's MO right on the dot. So, <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out. Uh, Emilio, you want to introduce yourself briefly for those? My story is not as exciting. I think the one thing in common that Ian and I might have is that me being a CISO and him being a multi-time founder is that we're sucker for pain. So I think that's, Probably a good intro in itself, but uh, CISO of Datadog, long time in security, mostly for high-tech, fast-paced companies. So Ian, let's dive into what Protect AI actually does. Yeah. So I think I'm terrible at branding. My co-founder thinks maybe I'm brilliant. Again, my last company was literally called datascience.com was the name. This company is called Protect AI. So what do we do? We protect AI. And that means we're building security solutions for ML systems and AI applications. And this is a brand new space or segment within security vendors. And we're liking to call it ML SecOps. So just like we have you know, DevSecOps, we think there needs to be a brand new evolution of ML operations to include security. And that's our market. ML SecOps and Protect AI's building security tools for ML systems and AI applications. I'm curious about like before we dive deeper into the ML SecOps topic because I, I want to really go deep there. First, kind of go back to your time being the worldwide AI and ML leader at AWS. What did you see about enterprises actually adopting ML and where to use the adopter curve? Right, kind of where are we in that? era? Are we still, you know, how everyone talks about cloud being in the last inning or the fat part of the curve, right? You know, are we in the earliest innings of that curve or are we in the middle or are we closer to the end? So at Amazon, AWS specifically in my role, my team around the world would meet with over 9,000 customers every couple months. 
And so it truly was large adoption. I can't give clearly, you know, the revenue, but what Amazon has said is they've had, you know, 100,000 customers using AI and machine learning across the AWS stack. There's still much, much more growth to be had. I mean, we're hearing about companies like Jamie Dimon and his shareholder letter for JPMorgan Chase saying, we have 2,000 ML practitioners and engineers. We have hundreds of use cases. We're spending over a billion dollars in AI, but yet we still have a long ways to go. So I think it's not early. We're not necessarily fat, but we're starting to build our muscles and become fat. Yeah. And what led to those companies, the ones that you saw being effective at it, did they first have to hire a bunch of data engineers and set up their data pipeline properly? Was it they had to have a cloud data warehouse? Like, were there any sort of things that you were like, okay, I know this company is going to make it here. You know, they're on the path to leveraging ML. Going back to my last company, datascience.com, which we started in 2014, the catalyst here was really the rise of MLOps as a thing as a thing, as a practice and a process that companies are hiring around, understanding, building centers of excellence, but also as a software category. And so as that came to maturation on that side of MLOps, we started to make sense for companies. How do you build? How do you collaborate? How do you put models into production and monitor these models? And so we really saw that, that change take place between 2014 and 2018. Now there's not one large enterprise that I know that doesn't have an MLOps strategy, team, and software in place. And so that's really helped in terms of driving and being the catalyst for a lot of these companies adopting and putting in production ML and AI applications. I would say also it's just a lot of investment too done in, in building infrastructure to support that MLOps, right? Not just the production and the testing and the building of them, but the running of them. And if you're containerized, what does that look like? And things like that. So I, I agree with you. It's, it's the rise of the whole ecosystem around it, right? Right. And so if you look at the one of the latest vendor ecosystem charts, you know, iCharts, if you will, on the data and AI space, there's over a thousand vendors. It's kind of crazy. Like I would hate to be one in your shoes, Emilio, like it's 99,999 less than security, but it's getting there. Yeah. 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 It's true. Like <laughs> I said, it's, a, it's kind of a new growing space. AI security. I think there's like five companies right now. So <laughs> I want to dive into the, the ML security aspect of all of this. So first, I think let's set the stage for people who are trying to understand what does ML security mean? And I think one of the things is what are the components, right, involved in that? So really the supply chain aspect, you have the Jupyter Notebook, you have open source libraries, you have data selection, you have production deployments, all these sort of things, right? So I know there's a lot of areas, right, to cover in that, but Ian, maybe start off by compressing that into what are the key areas of the ML supply chain that people need to be aware of? Yeah. So let me back up from a higher perspective. As I stated before, ML SecOps is becoming a thing, machine learning, security operations. And there's five key pillars that we see for ML SecOps, supply chain vulnerabilities, model provenance, governance, risk, and compliance being the third, trusted AI, and then adversarial machine learning. So you brought up supply chain. So first, the ML development lifecycle is different than the software development lifecycle. And what I mean by that, and it's really important to be able to understand that, is it includes data. It includes model artifacts, you know, how you train and tune the models, and yes, code, but it's also dynamic. It's constantly learning. It's creating new data on that side that's retraining these models. Now, with regards to the ML supply chain, I like to say that it's very rare to find companies creating completely original art in AI, meaning 
that most AI and machine learning is built on the back of prior art, whether that's academic research, um, maybe it's open source libraries, packages, frameworks, or foundational models. And all of this is included in the supply chain along with the data that's used to train these models and validate and test these models. So the supply chain is more than just code or OSS. It's quite extensive, especially if you tie it back to the ML development lifecycle and how that differs from the software development lifecycle. Actually, one point there too is, and maybe something that is not heavily talked about, at least that I've seen is double clicking on that data aspect of ML security. So you have all this software that processes this data and then you you look at the more traditional security vulnerabilities that happen when you deal with unfiltered data, right, or unsanitized data. So how do some of these libraries actually parse some of that data as they're working on the ML models? And we've seen things even within Jupyter, for example, with like remote code execution by you running a model on some data that contains some code and it just ran it. So like, I don't know if you can share more about that, but is that part of what you're suggesting as well? Is that where your mind is at? Yeah, absolutely. So let's stick with that example on the Jupyter side. So Jupyter for the audience is a an IDE that ML practitioners use, oftentimes when they are exploring data in the experimental phase of building a model. Some companies, and you can Google this, actually use Jupyter notebooks in productionalizing and building you know, models that get deployed, which might be a little bit crazy. But in a Jupyter notebook, you can pip install open source packages, you know, and there's ways to lock that down. And Emilio, I'm sure you do that, you know, within your company, but sometimes it's the wild west. People are just going yeah. in there and they're installing all of this open source software. But here's the kicker. There's not one SCA tool on the planet that worked for Jupyter Notebook. And so if you're looking at code vulnerabilities, like if you're using open source software, like MLflow as an example, which is the model registry that's used in the pipeline, my research team found a 10 out of 10 critical bug as measured by NIST for complete LFI, RFI, cloud takeover, like super simple exploit to be able to steal models or inject code in models. But the point here is there are tools that are not covered by today's security vendor landscape that looks at the supply chain and is able to inform, detect, stop you know, those areas where there could be vulnerabilities. And that's a gap within this area. Yeah. So how would you suggest teams, like where do they get started? Like what are some of the initial points that if you're looking at ML security from scratch, like what are like the first two things that you recommend people to look into? First and foremost, you can't protect what you don't see or you don't understand. The basics of understanding and cataloging the ML supply chain for each model. So think about that almost like a SBOM, a software bill of materials, but a ML bill of materials. And this is not being done at most enterprises. And when I say most, like most enterprises, like you know, a high percentage of them, this is a foundational item that every enterprise building, adopting AI must do. And that's create an ML bill of materials. Now, two, if people understand the security space, there's two organizations that try to set the standards for an SBOM. That's Cyclone DX and SPDX. Both have come out and they've stated there needs to be a new version of a software bill of materials for AI. Why? Because it's not just code again. You need to have complete understanding of that life cycle that is inclusive of model artifacts, the data, yes, the code, and have it live in this dynamic nature, but yet a system of record. So first, it's catalog what you're doing. Understand the ingredients, the recipe, 
And from there, you can understand and assess the real risk of the supply chain and truly understand the threat surface. Most companies have to start there. It sounds like the basics, but that's the biggest thing that's lacking right now in this particular space today. One question I have on that, Ian, is, is you know, I think SBOM, for example, in supply chain security has become this thing that people just say, right? And and I, like at this point, I'm not even sure what it means anymore, but, you know, and that happens with, with a lot of these things, right? But I guess like when you talk about ML build materials, like are there specific components that you're like, this is mandatory in every single, you know, so-called build material for people to understand, you know, what is actually happening in their systems? Yeah. So a couple of things that I believe are going to be the drivers here so that it's not just a term that we're throwing around loosely like SBOM is there's a lot of policy and we'll, we might talk about this a little bit later happening at the White House or in the EU around use of AI, risk of AI, security of AI. But if you don't know the ingredients or the recipe and how it's baked or the baker, then how can you really go stand in front of the White House and saying, we're going to deliver secure, risk-free AI? It's not going to happen on that side. And that's an attacker's paradise full of exploits you know, over there. That's where I think it's not just going to become you know, language that we throw around loosely. I think it's going to become language that's going to be tied to regulation and policy and start to see penalties almost like how we see penalties with GDPR on data. I mean, if you look at the EU AI Act, there's been drafts that have been inclusive of penalties of three to upwards of 6% of your global revenue on that side. And so I think it's going to take companies to really not just throw this on a whiteboard and say, maybe we need to have a plan here, but it's going to, I think, help drive adoption of best practices. In this case, a machine learning bill of materials is a place to start. Yeah. One thing on the attack surface or the type of attacks that we might see, I've read a little bit about ML poisoning attacks. And Amelia, I'm curious if you've seen or, or read anything about this as well, but it seems like something that is coming up more often. I guess one, describe what they are. And also, do we expect to see these, you know, on the rise exponentially? Or what's the magnitude of that issue that you expect to see? Ian? So first, what is a machine learning data poisoning attack? It falls under that pillar of ML SecOps that I called adversarial machine learning. And a ML data poisoning attack, it involves manipulating or injecting malicious data into a machine learning model's training data set over time to compromise its performance or its behavior. So you can start to pepper it with things that can start to skew the data, you know, if you will, over time. So what's an example? So let's say in a facial recognition system, you know, an AI application that gets built, an attacker could add, in a subtle way, modified images of a specific individual to the training data set over time. And this could cause the model to consistently perhaps misidentify that individual as someone else and potentially leading to unauthorized access or false accusations in security or law enforcement you know, applications. And that's actually, you're starting to see a lot of policy, if you will, even around facial recognition systems in the EU, New York, and elsewhere. But I think data poisoning attacks are real. It's a real threat vector. It's pretty hard to carry out because it takes time you know, on that. But then also it ties into the importance of understanding your training data, having attestation of your training data all the way through to the model that's being deployed. But it is a real attack vector underneath the theme of adversarial machine learning. That's interesting. This might be my uninformed opinion or sort of angle to this, but I'm very curious about how you think about 
ML poisoning and differential privacy. You're adding noise to the model to make sure that you can't identify a single individual as much as you can. How do you balance for being allowing differential privacy, but then protecting against something that will add noise to the model, which is what differential privacy kind of does? I think that's a tricky balance, you know, to be honest. And you start to get into this category that we call like trusted AI, like ethics and bias and explainability, you know, and tying that into the data, you know, that you're training these models on and making sure that the outcome that we are driving is not biased, you know, can be explained. And at the end of the day that we have, you know, complete wherewithal, if you will, on the data to make sure that it's not being tainted, you know, on that side. But this is an incredibly hard area, one for attackers, to be clear, like, it's hard to poison data. It's a real attack vector, but it's also really hard to defend against and to understand. I mean, you're looking for anomalies that go into these data sets as an example, and that's tough. You're talking about robustness you know, of these models and these data sets. So this is a hard problem. It's a real problem, but I also don't think it's the place that attackers are starting. The attackers are starting further down the supply chain with OSS and some of the other areas and exploits. But this is an area that I think is going to get a lot of pickup, especially with large language models and how they're being trained. You mentioned the EU AI Act. I'm very interesting because you just said, and I agree with you, defending and attacking these models is quite difficult. And I think there are more low-hanging fruit that maybe attackers are going after, like open source libraries and things like that. But do you think there is a known good already enough for there to be regulation against, right? So like you said, 3 or 6% of revenue, is it more about the ethics of ML that is being regulated or the actual security of ML that's being regulated? So if you read some of these draft policies, a lot of it has to do with the use and the impact. And you can almost tie that into like the ethics, right? Like what is the purpose of the machine learning model? What is the use case of it? What is the impact and how can that harm society or the people that it's aimed you know, at? So you see it a lot in facial recognition, law enforcement. You might see it in HR of how you're hiring, make sure you're not being discriminate, you know, and being equal. And so to your point, like there's a lot of emphasis there on use and impact and ethics. But when we start to tie in risk and security, I think that goes back to just understand how you're building these things. So you don't introduce in a wrong way things that can impact, you know, how the models are used and the bias nature of the models, because it, it could be sucking in the OSS that you're even using, you know, on that. I think it's all related. I think from a security perspective, specifically on these policies, it's starting with the supply chain. It's starting with understanding how we're building these. That makes sense. So I have a, a weird kind of attack question that I want to ask that's been on my mind, which is basically, if you're a large bank building a risk model, could I go in and kind of put some data specific to like, I don't know, some sort of fraud where like I pretend to be in India and I'm transferring money or something like that and inject that into the model so that then the model gets trained and it gets trained on like that data being the thing. And so then I can attack it. I'm not even attacking it, right? It's just, it's now being allowed by that risk model because like I put that data in or is that like too indirect of a way? Like, am I being too galaxy brain with my thinking there? What you're talking about in terms of, can I alter the data and can I inject something at the point of inference? This is actually called a backdoor attack. And so it's one part poison the data, one part is an adversarial technique called a backdoor attack that as you, you know, do this inference, this input, can it trigger something that I want to happen in a malicious way? The answer is yes. However, that's not the most immediate threat vector in what you're talking about. And here's why I say that. 
In order to do that, you have to poison the data over time, which can be very difficult. You have to have access, sometimes like raw access to the model and the inference you know, on that side and true understanding of how the model works and how the features work. But I'll give you another scenario that's this is more practical. So I mentioned MLflow as like a model registry and how there's a LFI, RFI vulnerability you know, that was discovered on it. Why don't I just use that? Why don't I use that to do a code injection that anytime that model runs, it is doing something that I want in a nefarious, malicious you know, way. That's the easiest thing for anybody to go and exploit rather than trying to poison the data over time. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe I get access to the model. Maybe I don't. Maybe I understand the features to maybe likely get an outcome. Just go steal the model. Or replace the model with code that you know is going to be run every single time the models run. Like that is the scarier thing here from a real threat and vector on the side versus some of the theoretical things that maybe people are bringing up and, and writing some early papers about. That kind of reminds me a little bit of all the conversations that we're having around SSL and TLS and actual theoretical attacks against some of these ciphers. And there's very little proof of them being executed, but stealing a server's private key because it was left wide open, then why bother? We kind of touch up on this a little bit, but I'm actually curious if you have any suggestions. So we discussed our two parallels, right, with ML, right? Is that the protection of the models themselves, to your point of all the build of material, the software that it runs on and the libraries, but then there's the data itself. And like we talked about, there could be some data aspects that is it is processed differently and it actually does something nefarious with it. Like you can maybe train a model with JavaScript and it actually runs a JavaScript as an example. Any advice that you have people or, or to people trying to get into this space for a lot of focus is spent on the model itself, but there's to your point is also the data, like what are some starting points there or is it more traditional data sanitization type of advice there? Yep. So yes, security of the data is incredibly important. AI, machine learning starts with the data. We use data to train, to test, to validate models. My guidance is for enterprises to focus first on the basics of data security and make sure that the company's ML practitioners are following the same, or in some cases, more strict data policies than maybe their other engineering teams. Why do I say that? Sometimes ML teams actually work in like a shadow IT part of the org, but yet they have more permissive rights and access to data. So think about that. Like they're not being, you know, maybe under the same banner as the rest of the engineering team with the same policies and tools in place, but yet have access to live systems and sensitive data. So the basics here need to be followed of data security. And that includes data access control, quality assurance, secure data storage, secure data sharing, and many more. But to dive a little bit deeper on this, I think it's very important to have your data, your training, your test, validation, data sets as part of those bill of materials, but build an attestation. Build an attestation across your ML development lifecycle so you know that if the data you're using has been tampered or not tampered with, you know, and I think that's critical. And that kind of goes back to like that data poisoning. And it's like, how do we version the data? How do we attest this data all the way through? How do we build this chain of handshakes, you know, across the system to make sure that that's not broken? I want to ask you actually, because um, Emilio actually also manages IT and we've talked about actually previously shadow IT and this being the problem. So I want Ian, maybe you to double click on it. And then Amelia also would be curious to hear your view on it. But like, 
what does that statement i'm going to mix it up but like ml engineers are shadow it or have access to shadow it or something like what does that mean like what do you mean by that so first let me just say i think it's gotten better over the last like five years but let me tell you where i'm starting from as we were helping to invent the ml ops space back in 2014 with my company datascience.com and many other awesome companies there was a lack of like tooling and so Emilio and others would go to the data science teams, as they were called back then, and go, what do you need? And data science teams would be going, we're coming out of university, and we're using all these ad hoc tools and tools that were very hard to govern. Plus, they were coming out of academia, not with you know, hardly any engineering training or background on that side. But yet they're writing code, they're using open source, they're working with sensitive data, and then just the concept of artificial intelligence and machine learning for some IT professionals was kind of off-putting of what is this new thing that I need to learn? And who are you to say that this is different than standard software development practices? And they just kind of shut down you know, on it. Now, I think it's gotten totally better, to be clear. There are tools, there's process, centers of excellence around it, but you still lack from a academia perspective these people are coming in as data scientists, usually not classically trained, like an engineer that's used to putting code in production. So they sometimes skip the line and some steps, not because they're trying to do that on purpose, just because they lack some of the training and ability that maybe some of their peers do in the organization as well. I agree with that. I, I've actually seen that transition happen where, you know, in academia, and I might be exaggerating you work in teams and the whole notion of let's share the work. There's more of that community feeling to it. And then when you go at an enterprise, or guess what? That's actually somebody else's data that you're working on, right? So you can't really share it as much. So there's that sort of realization that they have to go through. But I agree with Ian. I think the tooling, not just the tooling, but the ability to apply engineering practices to ML, like what we're talking about, ML ops as an example, has actually shifted some of that mindset and people do care, but it's just how do we give them the tools to enable them to make it happen for them, right? So like I mentioned before is how do we run your Jupyter notebook stuff in a containerized environment, maybe not exposed to the internet in production, but how do we give you the same tools that engineers have so that you can actually iterate over in these models and build and deploy and test? So I completely agree with the end there. I remember hiring and managing teams in like 2016, 2018 that I never worked with Git and committing code and understanding versioning and stuff. And that's gotten better with training and the ease of use you know, of a lot of these tools, but that's what we're working with. But I think we have a willing audience, which is nice. ML engineers and ML practitioners, they've really skilled up a lot in the last two to four years. And management's understanding of machine learning has also improved. It's a lot of similarities to security as well. I think because of the lack of knowledge and necessarily the shared common tooling, there's this thought that we're different, right? We're unicorns because our needs are different. Same thing with security. And as we see more security engineers apply the same practices as software engineers and write code and use Git and use CICD and all that, that's how they've been collating closer together. So I think for the data team is the same. One final question I have actually on the ML portion is, so we're talking about ML SecOps, there's ML engineers, there's data engineers, there's data analysts, right? There's all these different personas. Ian, like who, one, I think it's kind of, you have the DevOps problem, right? Of like, one, who cares about security? Two, how do you get them to care about security? And then three, like, do they all need to be aware of it? Or just talk us through some of that, right? There's all these different personas involved, but like, 
when you say, hey, there's all these scary things happen, right? We need to protect against them. What does that mean actually for those personas? Yes, they need to care about security, but why? Machine learning sits at the heart of an organization. So if you're a financial services enterprise, you know, a bank, large bank, anytime money is moved around that bank, if you're a large, large enough financial services organization, a machine learning model is involved, period. So think about that. Like that is the heart you know, of that company. And so as you're building these models to assess risk, make loan decisions, trading, all that, like this is the lifeblood you know, of these companies. So should you think about security? Absolutely. Now let's talk about it on the different roles. There are teams that run and own the systems and the pipelines. We typically dub them as the ML engineers. And then there are the practitioners or the data scientists that work through those pipelines and those systems. So data scientists and ML practitioners, I think they're going to start using shift left tools. You know, they're going to use shift left tools similar to like what Sneak, you know, really did with DevSecOps, that they're going to be native in the environments. They're writing code, exploring data, you know, training models. And so, you know, just like we see that in other IDEs, we'll see that more in Jupyter Notebooks and other tools to check for things like OSS with code vulnerabilities. Are they exposing PII that they shouldn't? Maybe they'll stop from accidentally sharing secrets or make sure that the open source software they're using actually has permissive licenses if we're creating interesting IP you know, on it. And so like we've created a Jupyter Notebook. It's free, by the way. It's like Apache 2 license. Anybody can go use it. It's called MB Defense that does just that. Shift left tools for ML practitioners. But I think the core persona here of understanding security and really diving deep here is the ML engineers. They own the system, the pipeline, the development lifecycle. They get systems and models into production, and they oftentimes are responsible for working with security teams, for adhering to internal company security best practices and across risk. They have to use security products like the ML lifecycle attestation, supply chain security checks, creation of bombs. It's super important for them to have security as a skill. So I want to move into the AI security part because, you know, we got to cover the buzzwords here and uh, there's no bigger buzzword than AI at the moment. Although we're on now, I think maybe the third cycle, potentially even the fourth cycle of AI being the buzzword, but here we are. So I guess, Ian, start off with how do you think AI security differs from ML security? And we'll say in this case, when we say AI, we'll just say LLMs. So, Shomik, when you talk about AI and ML security and how it differs in LLMs, a couple things. So first, let's understand what is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is an umbrella term for computer software that mimics human cognition in order to perform complex tasks. Machine learning, it's a subfield of AI, and that uses algorithms trained on data to produce adaptable models that can perform a variety of complex tasks. So they're super related. LLMs large language models, as you brought up, they're a specific type of machine learning model. And that falls under the umbrella of AI, but it's a machine learning model. So LLMs such as like, let's say OpenAI's GPT-3 you know, as an example, that's built using deep learning techniques. And those deep learning techniques specifically leverage a variant of recurrent neural networks called transformer architectures. And that was a major innovation in terms of the rise or growth, if you will say, of AI. Now, 
LLMs are designed to generate human-like text by training on massive amounts of you know, textual data. They learn patterns, context, semantics from training data to generate these coherent and oftentimes contextually relevant responses. So therefore, I would say LLMs can be considered both artificial intelligence models and machine learning models. But they're you know, a specific you know, application of machine learning with a broader field of AI. That makes sense. We mentioned attestation a few times here. And one of the things I'm curious about is there's been this concept of data assets, right? Where a data team can go in, say, hey, listen, this is an approved data set or even approved results from a query, right? And like, this is what you can use in your slides. And this is what you can use when you're presenting to the board, whatever, right? But here you've got like all these sort of things. You've got foundation models. You've got the hugging face model you pulled down. you got, you know, something that you trained on your own, on your grandma's notes, right? Like, I guess from that perspective, like, do we need to have each of these be like a sign certified like hey this is the model that you're going to use is that the world that we're going to live in like what does that need to look like and i guess or maybe this is more a question for amelia would be like well how likely do you think that will happen in org but ian maybe you first i think that's a better world to live in if we can attest these things and understand the data that's trained these models and you know the foundational open source models that are fueling these customer interfaces i think that's all super critical and kind of goes back to maybe some of the basics that we're not doing in AI and machine learning and where to focus. We can build in these handshakes and build in this attestation. And and I think that's going to be a step forward in terms of trust of these systems, you know, security of these systems and de-risking these systems. It's a step forward. It's not the complete answer, but it's definitely something that I think we should do. I'm an optimistic, so I, I wish that we'll get to that point. I think the challenge there is there are only a few players that are building these models right now. So who do you trust to provide the attestation, right? It's, I mean, there's a reason why we have inspections done to construction projects that's not done by the builder, right? So I think there's something to say there. I'm hoping that we get to that point where we actually certify through a known list of things of what is it that these models need to have. Like, for example, maybe bomb build of materials for like what data was used how accurate was that data and things like that that go into that at a station, but I don't see it happening anytime soon though. Yeah, I think what's nice in terms of a innovation, the velocity has been crazy in this space, especially for the last six months, is it's not just the incumbents are owned by a few. It's clearly being led by a few, like the open AIs and Microsoft's involvement there and what we're seeing from Google and others. But the open source space is growing pretty fast. That is true. I have a lot of hope in the open source of keeping everybody also honest. And as we look at the open source and how it's built and understand it, we can start to understand maybe some of these proprietary models of how they are also built and build systems and ledgers and policies, regulations, you know, that can be deeper in terms of their expertise and the knowledge of how do we actually drive a safer world with these LLMs and not just introduce a bunch of risk. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I think the open source, it reminds me of the early Linux days where I think we're going to see open source driving that conversation because right now what you see is I'm here at this point, but please regulate everyone else behind me. <laughs> so I do like the open source approach to it and there are new models coming out quite often from the open source world. For an LLM, right? There's various stages. You have the training stage, you have the inference, you have deployment, you have the API that you're potentially consuming it through, right? So 
I guess, Ian, from your perspective, where do you think is the scariest attack surface in the kind of areas that we just talked about? I think there are three areas that are clear targets. And that is, as you stated, the training data, right? The training data that's being used in the model, the supply chain of the foundational model that might be used or the model that we're getting from a vendor. And then three, the point of inference. Not all machine learning models are you actually as a consumer interacting or have the inference available for you to communicate with. You know, in the example of like the bank that I gave and money moving around, those are a lot of internal systems that it's working with. The unique area here for a lot of these LLMs is that it's, it's very much interacting in a public way with the end user. So to answer your question in terms of the scariest, I think it's more about what's the reasonable areas that could be attacked. Definitely the training data. If it is an open source model that's being used, like a foundational model, understand how that model is built, understand the supply chain of that model is critical. And on the inference side, prompt injection attacks is a, a newer field in terms of its advancements, its innovations from a hacker community perspective. And there are four types of prompt injection attacks that people have been able to carry out with some reasonable success that might hurt some brand for a company, but also get sensitive data, you know, and that's at the level of the prompt side. And so that's getting the most attention, at least from a news perspective is inference at prompt, prompt injection attacks. Yeah. Going to prompt injection is pretty interesting. It actually feels like it's unlike attacking the model itself, where the access to the model is pretty tricky. And to your point, you have to continuously poison the model through some time to be able to yield some results. Prompt injection feels like it's something like even a 15-year-old can actually do. And in fact, I remember getting a text message from my son how he was able to get ChatGPT to act like an anarchist and respond with some very questionable answers. Like, what do you suggest there? Is it as black and white as in protecting against any type of injection attacks from a web application? Or is it more involved that people have to... If I'm a user of an AI model or an LLM in particular, what do I need to think about and if I'm a provider of an LLM, what do I need to think about? I think similar to what you saw in on the web application and APIs, you're going to start to see growth of firewall solutions and methodologies that might be similar in things that we've done 5, 10, you know, in the past 20 years, where as we get a prompt, we don't just send that prompt blindly to a system to respond to. We might have some checks and balances in between, which in essence is my in quotes concept of a firewall. And so those checks and balances could be, for example, is there PII information being shared, but also is there PII information as the response, you know, coming back? We can start to build in heuristics and tests and scanning against a repository of other known or similar attacks so that we can identify these things. I think what's going to happen here is a middleware opportunity where it's not just the user interacting with the machine with nothing, you know, that's holding back that conversation. I think we will build in a firewall. That's where I see the innovation going. There's some open source projects that are doing that. There's a few companies that have been launched in just the last couple of weeks. And that's been a, a clear topic for a lot of the vendors in LLMs is how do we protect against prompt injection attacks by injecting ourselves in between those conversations. That's interesting. I, I'll be curious how what the solutions end up looking like because I still see it as an unsolved problem given the openness of what a prompt can be and what the model can respond with. I'm actually curious, like via prompt, 
you know, is there a way that a prompt can interact with a model where it gets it to execute code? And and I've seen some topics or even articles from OpenAI how like it can't run code for you, but it can print code for you. What do you think are the best guardrails that people should build around that? So we talked about like legitimate threats and scary. I hate using words scary and security to be clear. <laughs> Sorry, that was me. That was me. I'll take credit for that. I think where things become a a bigger threat is when we connect these systems to where the chat interface, or in this case, the generative AI, the LLM is area to carry out tasks at a system level, not just write code, but execute code, make decisions, send emails on behalf, like push a button. And before we link all these systems, I think we need to have guardrails in place. There's some pretty cool projects out there for the community to check out. Guardrails AI is one of them. And they're trying to build in kind of a, a stronger system, if you will, and, and hence the name guardrails. They're just as clever of a marketer as maybe I am to keep things on track so that these LLMs are doing what we think that they're supposed to do. There's another one called Rebuff. Rebuff is more on the prompt injection attacks themselves and trying to stop them as that middleware and as that firewall. So I think, Emilio, what you're saying is as we open up these systems to actually drive actions, that becomes a little bit, to use Shomik's word, scarier. But I think we need to hurry up and get some guardrails in place. And there's a couple of projects that are showing promise in this space. I'm glad to hear that because I can see the need and the desire from the consumer side getting their way faster than the protections and the guardrails. So is the traditional security space as well. But I can see people wanting an AI model to book flights for them. And like, by the way, plan me an entire application in the Bahamas for a week, right? And let it go wild where there are a lot of safety considerations there to keep in mind. I mean, that exact use case is being talked about by the leading travel companies right now where maybe I don't have to work with a travel agent. I just go there and say, hey, I want an amazing trip you know, through Italy. I've never been before. Here's my budget. I'm a family of four. We like to stay in hotels you know, like a certain class. Book me a seven-day trip with itinerary and just go for it. And so think about that, like the system should be able to go make the reservations, set up the rooms, ask for late checkout and all that, but it's carrying my, my money and it's making decisions and it's booking things on my behalf actions. Now, that particular scope might be limited in the risk, but if you expand that across other use cases, that's where I think the threat surface becomes very interesting, you know, to use a word, not scary <laughs> here like Shomik might want to use. <laughs> well, actually, Amelia, I have one question for you. And, and then Ian, I'd, I'd be curious uh, if you're taking on. But Amelia, I think you, you talked to, I asked you this question once before, and you were like, hey, there's no stopping people from using LLMs. Like, I'm not going to tell my developers they can't use this because they're trying to experiment with what it means, what products they could build, how it could help them out, right? How it could assist them. But meanwhile, you're also hearing like Ian's talking about all these threat vectors, right? And, and attack surfaces and things like that. So, I mean, from your perspective, like, what do you do, right? Like, is it like, oh my God, like, you know, I just hairs on fire and run around? Like, obviously not, but like, I'm just curious, like, what do you do in a scenario like this? Thoughts and prayers. Uh, I, I'm kidding. I, I think, so there are a couple of aspects, right? There's the data aspect of it where what data are we sending, you know, prompting the model with, who do we get it from? what sort of agreements we have with the vendor providing the model and protections there. And I think that's the easier part. 
where you get the contracts and the DPAs of the world and all that to solve that, in a way saying legally I can go after you if you mess up for me. And that's a level of protection there. Two things that we're having a lot of discussions about. One of them is prompt injection, right? So as everyone is interacting with LLMs and creating an ability to query LLMs is what can people use it with, right? And we've seen a couple of product releases of AI chatbots and things like that. If we're paying for our consumption of LLM model, I don't want to make that the chat GPT of somebody for somebody else, right? And that's like the very basic level of threat. The one thing that I don't think there's a lot of chatter about, and I think there's two aspects of it, is what do we do with the output of it? It's known to not be 100% accurate all the time, but there is this psychological safety that comes from a system told me this, so therefore I must trust it. Because we're already used to, some people believe everything they read on the internet, or if Google recommends me a better restaurant for me to make a reservation, I'm going to make a reservation at that restaurant, right? Whether it ends up being a better restaurant or not is, is subjective. But there's that already that default safety aspect to a system giving you a recommendation. And that's something that I do talk a lot about internally with the teams is whatever we're trying to do with LLMs that I obviously can't share a whole lot of, but is what do we do with that output? And then second to that is as we're building AI tools for developers or for consumers, what is the safety aspect of it, right? So say Copilot, right, is producing code. Do you just blindly trust the code or do you have processes in place to add some sort of validation there? And then if I'm having an AI book me a reservation, is it going to book me a reservation in a hotel where there's a very high chance I can get robbed the moment I walk out? Or is it in a nice spot for my kids, right? And things like that. So those are where the deeper conversations are. They're providing access to an AI model. I just use the legal route, right? It's, it's as simple as that. And then, because otherwise I'd be lying to myself if I said I blocked it and nobody's using it, everyone is using it. So I didn't want to even go down that route. But curious what you think, Ian, actually on that. I agree with what you're saying. And what I'm seeing from enterprises as they're adopting is let's create policy, let's create process, and let's make sure we have some really good training and education. And part of that training and education is to not blindly, as you brought up, like just accept truth you know, from AI. We have to make sure that AI augments our work, but is not our work right. you know, on this. We need to second guess it. We need to have common sense about it. We need to make sure that it helps us, but it's not the crutch, you know, and the thing that we're having to lean on all the time. And I think that's really important in terms of where innovation is today on AI. It is making mistakes, but it's also incredibly valuable mm -hmm. and it can really bolster productivity if used right within an organization. The policy component is something I'm interested in because I guess in like dev tools or DevOps, you kind of have Terraform modules and they're kind of enforcing certain policies in the way that they're set up and then the way that then developers are using that to provision it. But like, I'm just making it up. Like, what if the policy is like, hey, don't use the LLM on like this client data, right? <laughs> um, but then like, you know, I don't know, sometimes maybe I'm like, oh, that'd be kind of cool to just see what it spits out, right? And I just run it on my own and see what happens. Can you actually create something where that can be enforceable from that perspective? I'm just curious, like how you think about it. First off, we need to say Shomik's a renegade. So that's, that's first and foremost. <laughs> Emilio, I'm sure, can talk about locking down software and access, but this is like, these are common things we've been able to do. On the policy side, I'll give an example here. 
I was just going through SOC 2 with a company. And I'm so sorry. You've gone through this, you know, multiple times. But there's just the basics sometimes, right? Be a good citizen. Don't steal information. Don't look at customer data and take a picture of it with your phone and leave the office and post that on social media. And so I think, Shomik, like, this might sound simple, but it is teaching the basics. It's getting people to understand that, go through these training. And then it's probably up to, and this is where it goes to Emilio, of like, okay, how do you make sure from a system perspective that we have tools in place to be able to back up the policy we're putting there so that we can monitor it and make sure people are adhering to it? I think I'll probably come up with a snarkier response. I think if AI is the thing that is triggering like a proper data control policy, you're 10 years too late, maybe. And at that point, you got bigger problems. But on the more practical side, because we do have engineers that are as renegade as Shomik is, and I actually happen to be a renegade myself as well, is what are the tools that you're giving them? Like a model needs to be tested, right? Like if you're going to be using LLM, you have to prompt it with something. You can't be prompting it with strawberries when you're actually going to feed it grapes at the end. So what are the mechanisms that you can actually get data that is safe to be used that mimics what is going to be used once you go live with it so that we can fully test this and do proper QA on it? So that's been a lot of our focus as well is if we're going to give you access to this technology, don't just blindly upload it to prod and really NGA a product with it. And we have other mechanisms to prevent that already. AI is not the reason for why we have to do it. But what are the things that you can use now? We happen to be in a space where it's very easy for us to do that because we do observability. So we, we observe Datadog with Datadog. So why not just use Datadog data to test it with, right? So it's a pretty easy answer. So I, it was a cheap cop-out for me there. <laughs> I actually want to move into how AI will be actually used in security tooling in the future. And so one thing I want to first start out with is a pretty crazy thing that somebody showed me with AutoGPT, where they basically were just like, hey, AutoGPT, go make money on the internet. And of course, they gave them some more prompts than that, right? But it was essentially like, pretend you're a hacker, and here's some sort of attacks to run, and then you just create a task list, right? And it's like, okay, I need to go figure this out. Here's the result of figuring that out, and so on and so forth, right? The 14-year-old hackers that we were used to back in the day, right? Like, are they going to be just using this sort of tooling to just attack us, you know, all the time and run rampant with these things? Or how do you kind of see that playing out, Ian? Shomik, quite the pessimist on this call. But as you talk about AutoGPT and, you know, leveraging these tools from an attack perspective, it is lowering the bar. It's making things easier, but it's also making things more scalable. And so just like how we can augment our day-to-day to get more productivity, so can hackers and so can attackers you know, on the side. So as AI tools advance, attackers are going to leverage them to automate certain aspects of their attack strategies. And that could include reconnaissance, vulnerability identification, even crafting sophisticated attacks with these tools. However, I would like to tamper this down that like all the effectiveness you know, of these attacks will still depend on the underlying security measures. Security measures that look at the robustness of targeted systems, and the countermeasures that we put in place and the understanding of these systems. And so just like how we've seen in all areas of security, and Emilio can get the background here, like it is this balancing act and this teeter-totter. As attackers become faster, smarter, so will the defense systems. And I think AI is going to have a role in defense, just like it's having a role, perhaps, as you mentioned, in attack. 
I agree with that. Actually, I was going to ask a question or make a comment about we put a lot of emphasis on what AI can do for the attackers, but I believe if the tide is rising, then it rises for everyone as well. So that means the defenders can also use AI. And actually, I think that is a topic that maybe hasn't been fully explored yet is what can you actually build from a defensive standpoint with AI? We've been focusing on how you can attack the models or how I can have an LM write me a piece of malware. To Ian's point, I think we should have already worked on the right layers of defenses and think about the security basics to prevent some of that. And then maybe we should focus more on how AI can be used from a defensive mechanism and correlate data or infer some decisions there based on some things that is seen. So I would love to explore more of that topic. Like, I don't know, Ian, what do you think about that? Absolutely, defenders can harness AI tools to bolster their security posture. You know, develop more resilient systems, improve detection and response mechanisms. It is crucial. Actually, I would say it's critical for security professionals and organizations to stay informed about these latest advancements, continuously update their security practices, and collaborate with the broader community about, hey, how are we using AI for good as it relates to security you know, to further defend? And it's not just at the enterprise level at CISO, the security vendors are adopting ML at a rapid, rapid pace. You know, We've seen it from two of the biggest, whether it's Microsoft, Palo Alto Networks, they're adopting amazing AI use cases within their products that will only aid to the defense of AI and the broader defense of infrastructure, software, like all categories are really being improved from a defensive perspective by AI. And innovation here is still early. I expect many more exciting innovations using AI for defense. All security vendors are implementing an AI product strategy to improve their offering, and that's going to benefit all enterprises. I agree. I think even at a simpler use case where AI or a particular LLM can help is we talked about SOC 2 and going through that, and, and it's a very checkboxy type of approach. Imagine the people who actually do that for a living being able to query an LLM and say, hey, what does this piece of code do? Because I don't understand it. And that's something that people can do now. It doesn't require a lot of building. So I hope it gets widely adopted by defenders. I'm probably still a little bit more persnickety on, on some of the announcements. Surprise, like, you know, surprise. I've, I've seen, you know, the Microsoft and GCP announcements, very smart people, obviously, in, in both those orgs. But I, I think sometimes I wonder if it's a little bit of the marketing engine also getting involved. But certainly it seems like some areas, like, I mean, SOAR should be changed in a big way, right? Because automation plays so well into the workflow side of things that LLMs can do. And then I also think from the SIM side, like, I think there's, Search obviously has a, a natural bent to what LLM should be useful for and, and should be able to help out. And then, you know, UI improving those sort of things. But I sometimes wonder if like the larger companies are are not catering maybe to Wall Street or something by putting some of these things out. But again, who knows? I actually agree with you. I think there is an element where in your earnings call, if you don't say AI, your stock will go down like 20%. I'm making stuff up, right? But I think there's an element to that. What is interesting to me about LLMs and AI in particular when it comes to security products or even any technology product for that matter is this is probably going to be the make it or break it integration for some of these products. So to your point, if it's marketing fluff and then the product ends up being very shallow and nothing there, it's actually going to be a landing opportunity for a new player who's actually integrated with it better. So instead of an expansion, I think it's actually going to be a landing feature that people will be looking for. So I'm actually looking forward to it. 
that makes a lot of sense. Well, we talked a lot about attackers, prevention. I used the word scary a bunch of times. <laughs> I think uh, let's end things on a brighter note. So, Ian, I want you to paint us the rosiest picture possible of how AI security gets better and what happens in, in the promised land in the future. And Emilio, after that, I'd love to hear you do the same. All right, the rosiest picture possible. Protect AI helps enterprises build a safer AI-powered world. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the, the, the way, what I really think here is that, and I do actually believe in our mission statement, but while security is of AI is a new topic, we're seeing that large enterprises, government entities, they further understand the risks you know, and the need for security. They're creating policy, creating regulation. In fact, some enterprises have even started to employ titles such as AI security leader. That's right. I've actually met with somebody at JP Morgan that that's their title as a managing director. So the potential of AI in helping companies digitally transform is so massive, but it must be protected commiserate to the value that it creates. And I think that's starting to happen. It's happening now. So the time is now for the security of AI. And we're seeing that from a lot of enterprises. And I think that's super positive. We're adopting fast and innovation is going quickly. But as long as we put these controls, these measures, you know, security in place, I think we will build a safer AI-powered world. That's interesting. So are we going to have the CAISO title at some point being proposed? <laughs> yeah. uh, the CAISO? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. I actually see a lot of positive with AI and particularly some of the things that we talked about, right? I think it lowers the bar for people to enter a field that is super difficult to enter. And we're talking security and technology in general. So I look forward to this new generation of what can we do with AI from a defensive mechanism and even what can attackers do with AI because it only makes us better defender if you see it that way. But then this new generation and wave of people that can now collectively write better tooling or write code or get access to technology that before would have been extremely difficult, right? So one of the best things that LM has done is that the programming language you need to know now is your natural language. So I want to see more of that evolution continue. On that positive note, I think we'll end things before I uh, make it more pessimistic. So uh, we'll we'll go. Uh, you know, I think Ian and Emilio, thanks so much for the time and, and sharing the insights. Ian, maybe start with you. How can people find you if they'd like to get in touch? Pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Just search Ian Swanson, or you can find me at Protect AI. I'm there. I'm at events. I'm happy to chat, talk about anything and all to do with artificial intelligence, especially security of AI. And Emilio, where can people find you? People can find me where they smell bacon. I think Twitter, E-A-E-S-C-O-B, and then on LinkedIn. But I'm, I'm cheating because this will be my second time saying this in your podcast, though. We go for uh, repeat guests, although now you're a co-host, so it's a little bit different. But uh, no, <laughs> thanks so much, guys, for the time. Really appreciate it. I think this will be a, a fun episode for a bunch of people to listen to and, and frankly, get up to speed in a space that's really evolving quite quickly and I think has some people you know, very excited and some people also pretty nervous right, about what's happening. And I think we've struck the right balance talking through the pros and the cons of what's going on. So very excited for the future and thanks so much for the time, guys. Thank you.